Happy new, uh, happy new Year in the church. Let's pray first. Advent 1, so a new season starts. This is the you know, January 1st of the church year, as it were. Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious as he's Zechariah 9.9. And then you heard about that as well this morning. So let's pray. Almighty God and Lord, we beg you, come to us, come to us with all your power and help us who are anxious or troubled. Send us your helper, our Savior Jesus Christ that he may enter into our hearts and illumine our night. Through his holy name we pray. Amen. So Advent is this you know, sort of strange season. It was as long as 14 weeks in the early church. It has a fairly good pedigree. It started 5th, 6th, 7th century. It's getting formulated already in France. Uh, it is an odd thing because, you know, in some ways, uh, it should be this sort of joyous season of expectation because we have, you know, John and John the Baptizer. Uh, Zechariah, Elizabeth, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary, Joseph, you know, these stories, but they don't actually find their ways into the text very easily because in the early church uh, and then through the centuries there was this sort of merging, which Pastor Nelson did very well this morning, talking about Jesus' um, last coming and his first coming, how those fit together. And so this is uh, in some ways a, a time of the church here where we don't know, you know, there's some expectation, we don't want to be, you know, Is it me? I'm the only one with the microphone. I suppose it is me. Uh, nevertheless, I thought I'd ask the question. Um, there we go. Now I'm better. Okay, good. So, you know, it's this interesting time of year, but we'll try to get all the pieces in. Remember, there's Taze on, on uh, if you just need a little quiet for the season, Wednesday night, 7 to 7.30, there's Taze coming up. Um, a lot of big things, you know, next week is a call meeting, a vote, regular voters meeting in tucked inside that is a call meeting, so make sure you come back for that. I can't imagine it would go more than an hour, um, but uh, we'll see what happens. Let me see if I can readjust here, maybe not make such, such a noise. Okay, um, so we kind of picked up where we left off, and uh, you know, here's, here's, the, here's basically the thing. The Holy Spirit is active in the church. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does is give you uh, these gifts of energy, these energies, which are available to you. Now, you may choose not to use them, um, but that's sad because that makes the world a darker place. Uh, the gifts that he gives lead us forward. The gifts that he gives enlighten us. The gifts that he gives strengthen us. They show us the way. And primarily, last time, last couple times, we've talked about these gifts as faith, hope, and love. Uh, you know, there's the great, there's the great um, passage that everybody reads at their wedding, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind, not jealous or boastful, not arrogant or rude. You know, love doesn't rejoice in the wrong, it rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. And so, in many ways, love is spoken of as the greatest gift. Now, in the Reformation, as a corrective, um, Lutherans began to speak, speak quite a lot about faith. In fact, some Lutherans, if you ask them if they have to choose between faith and love, they'll, they'll, they'll take faith. Um, you know, probably it's better just not to ask the questions. Some things it's better just not to ask. But your experience of faith, hope, and love actually goes like this. Love, faith, hope, and love. So we're about in the season of incarnation where Jesus comes to you in the ultimate act of love that Jesus loves you so much that he comes to you just like one of you and he redeems your life. Now, just as an aside, um, the, the margin comment that opened the day and opened the new year, I was very intentional about putting that in. 
That's a very powerful comment by John Kleinig where he shows you how the devil can get to you once you're a sinner. And it, well, the thing that he did, the way he dissected it, it was just so clever. Because basically what happens is God doesn't want to condemn you. He loves you very much. And the proof of that is going to be at Christmas. But, you know, everybody does things. And sometimes we do really horrible things. Sometimes we just do things that are blatantly contrary to what the Lord asks us to do, you know. We have idols, you know, we don't, um, you know, we don't come to church, we don't say our prayers, we, we covet what other people have, just these sort of blatant things. Um, it was very interesting how, how John Kleinick spoke about those sins, and the devil is behind this, you know. For people who are proud, he just says, you know, there, there, boy, just sort of carry on, nothing can go wrong, you know. Um, and in that way, you never repent of your sins because you think your sins don't matter. You can kind of do what you want. For people who are weak or kind of broken or have a low self-esteem, it's very interesting how he talks about this, the devil uses the opposite tact. He makes you feel so horrible about yourself that you don't even lift up your head to confess. And you see, in either way, you're lost. You know, you do something and you're proud about it. You'll never confess because you think it doesn't matter. If you do something and you're weak, you never confess because you think it matters so much that nobody could forgive you. And both of those are wrong, you know. To be so proud that you'd never confess or to be so um, humiliated and shamed that you'd never confess, both of those just leave you wanting. And of course, down the middle is the truth, which is God loves you so that he takes you to himself. He loves you so that he becomes one like you. He loves you so that he gives you his Holy Spirit. He loves you so that he goes to the cross and forgives all your sins. And, you know, what's important about that is the access to that. And so why it's so important to come to church every week is that the Eucharist touches you and forgives you. The words touch you and they forgive you. Um, the blessing touches you and it changes your life. You know, we sing hymns and we hear the gospel and the world opens up as a brighter place. So the way that the Lord loves you is actually very practical. It actually equips you to go out into the world and to be a person who lives in love. Now that's not easy. You know, it's not easy when you're faced with the choice between do I do what Jesus asked me to do or I do ask what the world asked me to do? Do I do what Jesus asked me to do or I do what my friends asked me to do? Do I do what Jesus asked me to do or do I, uh, you know, do I do what I would rather do? You know, it's not easy. And that's where faith comes in. You see, faith, faith always clings to the love of Christ in the cross and in the manger and in the Eucharist. And faith says, even though it seems like it would be better to follow the world or follow my friends, even though that would make my life easier to follow my own heart, at the end of the day, and this is the important thing, if we follow our own hearts, we will just be broken. This is why the notion of sort of being a secular humanist just doesn't work. Well, they're often very, very good people. You're great to be around. But the problem is, is that at the end of the day, it's never more than being human. And to not be more than human, to not be divine, is to be broken. At some point, you can cover it up as long as you want, but it's, in some way, the only true life is to be forgiven and to be restored. And so to restore us, you know, Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit gives us faith, hope, and love or as we went through, love, faith, hope, and love. So he loves us, then we respond in faith, 
thank you so much for loving me. And we hope for a day when our troubles will go away and our restless hearts will be stilled and the yearnings for things that'll evil, that the, the yearnings for things that'll evil, our yearnings for things that are evil calm down. And if you ever had this in your own life where you've had a temptation that may have been with you for a long period of time, six months, a year, five years, ten years, and then suddenly it disappears. Now, I found in my own life that it disappears sometimes because then a different temptation comes, which is not always pleasant, you know. But sometimes, you know, temptations, they disappear because it hasn't worked. And so Satan comes at you in a different direction. So now you're tempted to do something, then now you have to re-experience a new temptation. You have to, you know, be strong in a different direction. Um, and that's very common with people. Most people I talk to, there's, there's one or two or three kind of temptations in the course of their life that reappear, 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 and they steel themselves against that. And we talk that way, the way we define people. We say, oh, that, that's, he's a very envious sort of person, or he never quite tells the truth. You see, those are the temptations that come, and they nurtured, and they, they go on, and we, be kind that kind of pe- we, we become that kind of person. We become a liar, even in little things. Or we become always unsatisfied because we're not sure that God loves us enough to give us what we want. Um, you know, so, and those are the sorts of things that happen across the course of our life. Now, here's the thing. What we're going to do today and probably next week is to talk a little more about that. It's a bit dangerous because if we start to look into our own hearts, and this is what Lutherans sort of got tired of and rejected finally in the 16th century, not, all, not, not completely for the good, we probably need a little bit of it back. But if you start to look into your deep, dark heart and try to number your sins, the number is infinity. It just keeps going. The thing that I gave you uh, in back is from a Catholic devotional called um, Magnificat, which I read on a fairly regular basis, pretty good in many ways. You know, that's a very helpful thing because it really parses out sin, the sin of pride, which is what we're going to talk about today. But you can see he draws about you know, 20 other sins just from the sin of pride. Now, if you start to do that for every deadly sin and then you constantly talk about that, suddenly you've got, you know, 140, 150, 160 things you're thinking about. Now, the problem with Lutherans is that we haven't done this for so many years, a couple of hundred years, that we don't know how to make a good confession anymore. And so we sort of sin as if it just didn't matter. We're not really, you know, what happens in the church is when things get too big, we cut them down. And when they get too small, we need to grow them up again. One of the things that's not grown up very well is how we confess. So, you know, that little piece there where he talks about pride, but then pride goes to be sometimes to habits and sometimes it goes to laziness. He divides it up. We'll talk about that. You need to do just enough of that that you can make a good confession, but not so much that it drives you mad. Because the truth is, you can't actually number all your sins And if you really do a good job, like Luther did, of really peering into your heart, it's the most depressing thing. Because you realize that even though you want to be humble, you just are always proud. And of course, you you don't get humility by chasing humility. You get humility in another way. I'll just just tell you, the way you get humility is to, to, to be grateful. Gratitude bestows humility. You don't chase humility, you chase gratitude. Because then you're humbled by all the gifts that you need to survive. So anyway, we're going to kind of shoot through all of those things as we go, uh, and we'll start with pride. But pause, I should have said. It's funny how things come back to you. The money in the basket goes to the people in Washington, Illinois. 
You might have seen the Lutheran Church down there gave lunch to everybody. It was fantastic to see Lutheran Church charities on the 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock news. So um, anyway, if you give a little money, it'll go to Lutheran Church charities toward Washington, Illinois. Can you hear me okay? I feel like I'm really soft. Can you hear me okay? You can. All right, you good? All right, so grab, uh, grab a, uh, grab a, a, this says number five on the top, okay? So, um, so this is where we started. Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit. And so everything that we do, um, we do in the Holy Spirit, okay? And this great little thing, we recall what Dr. Luther says in Freedom of a Christian. A Christian does not live inside himself. See, you're not an individual. You don't live inside yourself. You know, salvation isn't personal. Private. It is personal. Salvation isn't private. It isn't just about you. In fact, we can only become fully human in community. It's another reason to go to church. You can't actually become fully human on your own. You can only become fully human in relation to other people and in relation to God. Okay? We don't live inside ourselves. You and I live in Christ by faith. So we live in Christ by faith. This is going to be important. We have to figure out what that means. What does it mean to live in Christ by faith? It means to live in the church by faith, in his teaching by faith, in the Eucharist by faith. We believe it even when we can't see it, that if we repent and are forgiven and cling to the Eucharist and have the divine touch, that our lives will be best and will be forgiven and live eternally. Okay, We live in Christ by faith. And we live, this is terribly, terribly important. This is Luther, and this has been forgotten oftentimes. We live in our neighbor by love. So it's terribly, terribly, terribly important that we live in love in the world, that we're active in the world. I, I read a great article over the weekend, and I'm going to write to you about it. Around Lent time, we're going to write some stewardship stuff up. Well, I'm going to write... Pastor Nelson, the cool, hip, young, handsome pastor, he's making videos. <laughs> but I'm in a, I don't know if you saw, there was an article over the weekend. I mean, I read things maybe you don't necessarily read, but the Pope has a guy called the Almoner, which you, you, can, you might know about this. It's like alms, like in the basket. And all this guy does is go out and give things to the poor. Now, part of that was started when the when the Pope wasn't the Pope when he was back in Argentina, he used to sneak out in the nighttime and um, take, he, he said he used to take food to people on the street, but more than just take food to people, he'd actually sit and eat with them. He said, it's not just, he said, it's just, this is genius. He said, it's not just about giving people food to eat. It's actually, they need to know that somebody loves them, sits beside them. I mean, if I had, if I, I would, in my retirement, I would love to be the almoner. I would love to be the guy who had unlimited bags of money to give to the poor. That is a great, great job. So when this boat tipped over, you, uh, while we were traveling, you know, just before there was this boat that tipped over, many people were lost trying to go from Africa to Italy. Uh, the Pope sent this guy, now it's very practical stuff, with 1,600 phone cards so that sur the survivors could call their families and tell them we're still alive. You can rem what a grace that is. That, you know, imagine you were the person trying to flee illegally to Italy. The boat tips over and your family back home doesn't know if you're alive or dead. It's one of the kindest things you can do, right? So we live, it's why you put money in the basket. It's why, you know, at some point, our congregation, um, you know, it would be a great thing at the point where the mortgage gets paid off 
where you acted like it wasn't paid off and you just gave all that money to the poor. That would be a really, it would be interesting to have a congregation full of almoners, people who we would say to you, Rudd, here's $10,000. Try to give it all away before next Sunday, okay? And not just to your friends, not just to Philly and and Sovitsky. Try to get out a little more, okay? (laughs) And spread yourself around a little bit. That I mean, tell you, that would be that would be a cool church to belong to, if there were you know five or ten people whose job was to give away five or ten thousand dollars each every year. Now they'd have to be responsible, and they'd have to, you know, they have to find a cool place to give it. And it might mean you know, might mean going over to Pads when they shoo them all out at six a.m. and buying them all breakfast and sitting and eating with them. But that would be an interesting thing. You live in your neighbor by love, so you live in the church in faith basically means that you agree. Christ tells you what your life is like. Love people. Expect nothing in return. Forgive your enemies. Pray for those who hurt you. Come to the Eucharist. Go to church every Sunday. You know, be faithful to your spouse. All these things that Christ asks you. Faith says, okay, so we live in Christ in faith, and we live in our neighbor in love. We live inside them in love, you know. This is where Luther says we're little Christ to each other. But we only do that because Jesus has given us a Holy Spirit. He's given us love so we can love. He's given us faith so we can believe. He's given us hope so that we don't despair because the world is a very difficult place. It's a very, very difficult place. But here in this place, if we can live in love, we, we strengthen each other in faith, hope, and love. Right? But love is the key. Love is the key. It's the one that starts the story. It's the one that ends the story. When the other two disappear, in heaven there is no faith because everybody agrees. In heaven there is no hope because all promises have been fulfilled. There is growth. There is newness. There is expectation. Heaven's going to be a big place and eternity is a long time and there's going to be a lot of people there and they're very, very interesting. In fact, if you cleaned up all the people in this room, you'd all be interesting too, right? <laughs> I mean, heaven's going to, there's no faith there, there is no faith and there is no hope in heaven, but it is love, constant love, always love, divine love, full love, the love of a community, the love of self. It's a remarkable thing. So the order goes, love, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? Love, faith, hope, and then love again. And the question in this time in between is how we all live in all three of those how we live in faith, how we live in hope, how we live in love. That's the question, okay? And there's ways that if we understand ourselves, um, we'll get better at that. You still good? Okay. So number two, Jesus, Holy Spirit, fills each one of us with divine gifts. These deliver divine energy. So these gifts pulse in us. Now pause. One of the reasons you go to church. You remember when Kleine was here, he gave us this very clever pregnant statement where he said, Nobody possesses the Holy Spirit. You're not his boss. You're not the boss of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he comes to you repeatedly through his word and through his sacraments, through his divine touch. So it's not like you can, you know, you get it once and then you, you know, you act like nothing ever happened. No, it's this repeated re-upping, this recharging, this re-giving, which is why you come to church, the commandments say once a week, to be touched by the Eucharist, to be touched by the Word, to be touched by the forgiveness, to be touched by the Spirit, to be touched by Christ, to be touched by your Heavenly Father. This divine touch, the same divine touch that animated Adam. He was scooped up, 
He was touched. The Lord breathed into him. The Lord animated him. The Lord drew him up. The Lord put him to work. Life was fantastic. Everything was love. Right? You come for the same, it's the same reason you come to church. And you can't, you can't not come. If, you, if not, you'll, one of those two things will happen to you. You'll become proud, and you'll think you can live without it. Or you'll become broken, and you'll be afraid to come back. And either one of those will keep you away from grace. Okay? So it's the constant application of the Holy Spirit through the means of grace. Lutherans are huge on this. It's one of the best things we do. Okay? The highest energies of the Holy Spirit are faith, hope, and love. That's what we've been doing, 1 Corinthians 13. Lots more gifts of the Spirit are listed in the Scriptures, and they intertwine, they overlap. It's like the Scripture writers get excited, or they're doing pastoral care, or they're talking to a particular audience. And so they talk about it in one way, then they talk about it in another way, and they use one name, and they use another name, and things sort of get all kind of muddled up out of excitement, which is okay. It's like going to a party when, you know, so many things are happening. You, if you had to draw it on a flow chart, the party wouldn't be quite as much fun. Okay? But these are practical questions for us. How do we use them? And more importantly, how do they use us? Finally, turn the page, I give you something new. Right? You've probably sung this hymn a hundred times, Come Holy Ghost Creator Blessed. We sing it at Pentecost, we sing it at ordinations. There is this very interesting um, verse that says, In you with graces sevenfold. And if you talk to people, you will hear people say, Oh yeah, the seven graces of the Spirit, the seven gifts of the Spirit. And then if you say, name them, they either won't be able to name them or... They all name different ones. They get to 9 or 18 or 37, right? <laughs> and it's so interesting when there's a hymn that says, you with grace is sevenfold, and then the guy doesn't tell us what they are. You'd think to yourself, well, name them then, okay? Well, in any case, in you with grace is sevenfold, with God's almighty hand behold, with you, while you with tongues of fire proclaim to all the world his holy name. So he tells us there's seven gifts, but he doesn't tell us what the seven gifts are. That's very frustrating. So we got to look around a little bit for it. Um, and you might recall, just as we look around, there, is the, there are the seven deadly sins. And often the story is told as seven um, gifts, and then the corruption of them are the seven deadly sins. There's great stuff on the seven deadly sins. The, you know, you, can, you watch the History Channel. There's... They did a great thing where they did an hour on each one of the seven deadly sins. They're, they're genius. They never did the seven gifts of the Spirit, but the deadly sins are terribly interesting, you know, um, how they work and how you know, talked about punishing them and how the, the aberrations of them and, you know, what happens to you in hell when you're, you know, a complete glutton and you eat so much you pop and then you eat some pop again. I mean, it's amazing what they, the things that happen to you, okay? But forget about that for a while. Let's just go to Isaiah 11, 1 to 3. This is traditionally the place where the seven gifts are spoken of. And you know this. It's, it's Advent. It's Christmas. So look at this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Okay, already you're saying to yourself, this is the kingly root. This is, you know, David's branch. You know, Jesse, David's father. The tree gets cut off because Israel goes through all these horrible things and they lose their kings and kings are killed and the world, you know, they go into exile. But this promise, there shall come forth a shoot, right? You've all seen this. You know, you think it's dead, but then suddenly there's this little shoot. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now look at that. That's, so that's growth. So it's a shoot 
and then it's a tree, and then it's a branch, and then it's fruit. So this is, this is life, you know, life is on the way. We always read this for Advent and into Christmas. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, this burgeoning one, this one who's growing up. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and now count. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So delighting in that. That's seven. You see that? So there's seven gifts. This is the classic text of the Holy Spirit will descend and he'll bring these seven things. Number five, the trouble is he's talking about Jesus and not about you. Okay, so this is going to be fun for Jesus. Jesus is going to have these seven gifts. But how do these gifts come to you? Okay, Okay. now pause. Now we're gonna, I'm going to flip you. For weeks I've been saying to you that Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. But it's also true the other way around, that the Holy Spirit gives you Jesus. You know this already if you think about it. So the, Jesus gives you his Holy Spirit. He breathes on them and gives them his Holy Spirit. He blesses them and gives them his Holy Spirit. He baptizes and gives his Holy Spirit. But it's true the other way around, too. The Holy Spirit gives us Jesus. And when we get Jesus, we get all of Jesus. We get all his gifts. When you went to the Eucharist this morning, you got all of Jesus. That's why we pray, along with the Council of Chalcedon, body, blood, soul, divinity. Because you get all of Jesus that he is. You get his body, blood, soul, and divinity. You get all that he is. And when that touches you, the big noise is that it forgives your sins because as the Catechism says, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. If you get forgiven, you get all the rest. The question is, what's all the rest? Among all the rest is, are, these seven gifts of the Spirit. Okay, I'm going to flip the page. So Jesus is the gift, big G, and he gives us gifts, um, and, you know, sometimes these gifts are overlapping and, you know, but the point is these gifts are the thing that propel us through life. Now pause. It's the Christmas season. If you get socks from someone you love, my advice to you is not to return the socks. It just doesn't go well for you, okay? Try to find a hipster to give you some good socks. Then keep them and love them, okay? The point of that, of course, is if it can't be returned, it's not a gift. A gift can always be returned. A gift can always be pushed away. A gift doesn't work by force. A gift can always be resisted. So here's the thing. Jesus has given these things like crazy to you. You know, he's, he's, he's given you all he's got. He gives you faith, hope, and love. You know, he gives you fear and wisdom. I mean, you may prefer to stay stupid. Many people do. Not you people, other people, you know. You may prefer to be unloving. Frankly, unloving is, you know, a way to go through life with maybe less pain than being in love. Being in love is a terribly, terribly painful thing. To have your heart broken is horrible. But of course, you only get your heart broken if you've loved first, right? To have a gift is to, to have something that can be pushed away. So the Lord can say, do you come to church? And you can say, I'm not going. The Lord can say, here's the Eucharist. You say, I'm not having it. The Lord can say, I forgive you. You say, I don't need it. 
the Lord can say to you, depend on me. You're like, I'll make it on my own. Okay, you can always push the gifts away. It's terribly important. If you can't push it away, it's not a gift. Now that makes the Christian life terribly interesting because God's going to give you, it's Romans 8, the middle of Romans 8. Everybody always quotes, all things work together for the good of those who love God. But in that same, same just before that, Paul says, Will not he who gives us his only son also give us all things? So the father gives you his most important thing. His most important thing is his son born of Mary. If he gives you his son born of Mary, won't he give you everything else? His spirit, love, faith, hope. Won't he give you those? Yes, he will. He gives you those. He gives them as gifts. He gives them as gifts. He doesn't force them on you. He gives them to you as gifts. Merry Christmas. They're all yours. You cannot open your gifts. You can scorn your gifts. You can take your gifts back. That's the nature of gifts. The nature of gifts you can put away. Love is the great gift. You can push love away. You can make everybody hate you if you want. You can never return love. You can always make people around you uncomfortable. So the nature of a gift is it can be pushed away. It's terribly important to say that because what you'll find then is the Christian life is like this. Give me more, please. More, please. I'll have more, please. It's why you go to the Eucharist even when you don't want to go to the Eucharist because you have no idea what the Eucharist does to you. You, just, you see just a little piece of what it does to you. It changes you in ways that are mysterious that you know not what they are. But if you go to the Eucharist a thousand times, you'll be a different person than you, you, you would be if you don't go. It's just the way, that's just the way life works. The mysteries work on you, okay? So, the seven gifts. Number six, wisdom is the first one on the list, but it's not the first one I'm going to do because that's not the first one you experience. I'm going to do it, rather than the list that's in the scriptures, I'm going to do the list maybe wrong way around, or at least I'm going to start with the last one and work backwards. Because the first thing you don't, the first thing when you bump into God, the first thing you don't say, the first thing, the first thing you say is not, oh, you're so bright, or you show me the way. That's not usually what the first thing that happens to people. The experience of people is usually they have this, it's like Mary when she sees the angel, or Elizabeth when she sees the angel, and the angel has to say, don't phobe, don't fear. Your first experience of divine things is fear. I'm about to be destroyed, or I don't know what this is, or are you a devil, or are you an angel, are you for me, or are you against me, are you against me, do you love me, do you hate me, why are you here? The first experience when you come up against the divine is often fear, okay? Now, look at, I, this is point number seven, but look at, look at what it talks, your delight will be in the fear of the Lord. So unless you think that, you know, he was riding a roller coaster when he wrote this, you know. I mean, there are some of you who like roller coasters, right? You're a strange breed, you are. I mean, people who want to cry and throw up and then pay money to go do it again? I don't understand you, although I know you're out there, you know. Um, you know, this is, uh, your delight will be in the fear. This is not horror movie stuff. This is your delight will be... You'll actually take delight in understanding that the Lord is so other than you are, so different than you are, so holy, so loving, so powerful. You're going to actually take delight in that. Your delight is in this fear of the Lord. 
Okay, so now we've got to figure out what that means because fear is a horrible, it just doesn't work. I mean, you've learned this since you were a kid in the catechism. We should, we should fear and love God that we do not, da, 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 da. Or the very first one, what does this mean? Luther, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. How does that fit together? I mean, love and maybe trust, but fear, how do, what does that mean? Do I have to be scared all the time? And frankly, you know, the church is pretty good at scaring people. You know, when visitors come, I mean, I, there were visitors this morning, the first thing I ask them is, how did you screw up the courage to come, come through the door? I mean, it's difficult. Look at all you, and you're good people, and you're nice people, but you know a lot of stuff, and you all know the drill, and you don't need a bulletin, and there's coffee over there, and you're all talking to each other. You imagine what it's like, even for a lapsed Christian, it's hard. Imagine what it's like for, you know, for a Muslim to come through our door, or a pagan. Imagine how hard that is. Because you're afraid of what's on the other side of the threshold, okay? So we need to come to a fear that people can delight in. What would that look like, okay? There's two, um, two, kind of, two, there's two ways that, that fear is, this word can be used. This, it's an English word, obviously, you know, but the, the Hebrew word kind of means has, has, it's more rich, it's more robust, okay? This is number eight. It can either mean reverence or dread. So this is the difference, you know... Um, this is like, you know, if you met the queen, you'd have a bit of fear, but it would be fun. You'd have tea and wear white gloves and you'd have to try to remember when to curtsy. You know, that would be, that's, you know, kind of fun. If you get invited to Buckingham Palace, you'd say, well, that was nice. You'd all go, I'm sure, you know. But if you sort of met Satan face to face, you'd say, well, I might not have that. It's not quite so much fun. That would be the dread of it. So it means both of those things. So reverence is, and this is very important, is humility. Reverence is sort of knowing the order of things. Humility means you know the order of things. You know, false humility is when you never, false humility is when you never take charge of who you're supposed to be. If you're supposed to be a father and you never act like a father, it's a false humility. Or if you're a mother and you never act like a mother, if you're a boss, I mean, no, nothing worse than a boss that doesn't manage. If you're a manager, manage. If you're a steward, steward. You know, if you're a father, then father. And if you're a mother, then mother. It's false humility not to pick up your station in life. But it's also pride to go beyond your station, right? So humility means you find your spot. Or you respect the order. I mean, the most basic order is God and then us, right? So the great pride is when you invert the order and you become a point number one. God's point number two. That's why the very first commandment is don't have any other gods. It's not good for you. It'll ruin you. It'll hurt you. It'll make your heart hurt. It'll seem great for a while, but in the end it will crush you. You cannot bear the weight of being God. So the first thing about fear as reverence is to understand the order of things. The humil- you, you understand when you're being honored. If you, if you were invited to have tea with the queen, that honors you. There's no downside in that. Move up higher. I love you. Come to tea. Right? So don't understand humility as this horrible thing. Humility is the great attribute. You know, and it's you understand it by gratitude. If you want humility, you don't aim at humility. If you want humility, you aim at gratitude. This is I mean, this is all tied together. This is why the Eucharist is about Thanksgiving. So you kneel down and you receive the body and blood. And the host comes and says, the body of Christ, and you say, amen, which is to say, thank you, I need that, that's just the thing for me. 
I need to be forgiven. This is why I came. I'm happy, I'm happy to have the divine touch. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the body and blood. Thanks for connecting me back to my Heavenly Father. It's a humble act, but it's a joyous act because it sets the world right. And that's a great gift of the Holy Spirit. And you're happy about it. When your church works, when the church is giving out the gifts, when your church works, people are delighted. You know, when people overstep and when they lie, they cheat, they steal, when they're angry, when they're mean, when they shake their fingers, then your church blows apart. Why? Because the order has disappeared and things aren't working according to humility. Now they're working according to pride. They're working according to rights. They're working according to power. They're not working according to turn the other cheek and kind of say if somebody gets over the edge, hey, they're having a bad day and it'll get better next time and let's all go to the Eucharist because it'll be forgiven and we'll be strengthened for the next thing. This is a gift of the Spirit. And it's, so it's not just understanding the order of things. It's delighting in the order of things. So what you should be doing in a church, what I should be doing in a church, is to say, on my square block, what I'm trying to do, on your square block, what you're trying to do is to have a bit of heaven on earth. You're trying to recreate the world as it was meant to be. You're trying to reorder your life so that it's consistent with Jesus, so it's in the image of Christ. Follow me. And, be in, and it's not just that, but it's meant to be happy about it. This is who we are, and we're happy about it. We delight in it. It makes us the most happy thing. You see how far this is from normal life. You know, sometimes people think, you know, you come to church and it looks just like the world out there. It doesn't look anything like the world out there when it is done right. It doesn't look anything like the world. Because one is it's not fake. One of the things I've been struck by over the years, you know, one of my great, I, I spent all this time trying to say things really crisply and clearly and that was understood as bluntly and unnuanced. And I was quite surprised by that, as my wife likes to say to me. Let's see, how does she say this? She hasn't said it for so long. She's such a nice woman. Um, what did you used to say to me about the truth? How did that go? You haven't said it for so long, I can't remember. Yes, right. There's a difference between being honest and brutally honest. That's what you used to say to me. That's right. That's why you need to be married so your wife can say stuff like that to you. There's a difference between being honest and brutally honest. Okay. But what, what, I, what I, especially as I notice in business people, I apologize to you in advance, but I just notice so often that people actually don't say the thing. I've even noticed that in, you know, in church things and how you know, I would say it one way and I have to always take counsel about should it be said another way and what does it mean if it's... I've almost come full circle back to the bluntness, by the way. Because, and this is a thing I talk about with elders five times a year about how should this should be said? Is this being dishonest? Is this being true? How do you speak so people can hear? You know, what's the difference between being honest and brutally honest? How do you do this? But here's the thing. The church is the one place where we can tell the truth and delight in it. This is the one place in all the world where we're all committed to telling the truth and delighting in it, even when it pinches. We say that we say, well, we told the truth, and that was a little painful, but we told the truth, right? We love people, but that was a little painful, but we loved them. You know, we stuck with Scripture in the Eucharist and baptism. That was a little painful, but we stuck with them. That's faith. You know, we have a death. 
You know, Irene Spicer, 100 years old, Wednesday, come. You know, Nelson will say something like, I don't know what he's going to say, but he's going to say something like, ouch. You know, that was painful, but she saw it through to the end, and she's in a really, really good spot right now, delighting in the fear of the Lord, right? And that, that's, that's a humility. That's to know your spot and rejoice in your spot, embrace your spot, you know, to put yourself under Christ and then under whomever else you're supposed to be under. So if you have a father, you put yourself under your father. But if you're a father, you also have to be a father, you know. If you have a parent alive, you still in some sense put yourself under that parent. Although we all know how things, you know, change through the course of life as we marry and leave. And then as we all get older and we kind of turn back into children sometimes, right? It's very difficult to figure out how to parent your parents. Well, here it is in the New Testament. Since we have these promises, and promises is always a gospel word, God, God doesn't promise to destroy you. It's interesting. He uses another word, threatens to destroy you, especially in the, in the, in the, in the confessions. Promise is always a gospel word. We have these promises, beloved. You promise things to those you love. I take thee to be my. You make a promise. By the way, did the Vic actually get married? Does anybody know? Did it happen? I sent him a text yesterday. He didn't text me back. Is he on the run or did it work out? Does anybody know? Anybody seen a picture? Did it work? Good. Okay. Good to know. All right. That's great. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us, what? Cleanse ourselves. So we'll go to the Eucharist. We'll go to absolution. We'll go to baptism. From every defilement of body and spirit, which means we get, the, we get forgiven and then things get back in order and we receive the gifts and we live from the Holy Spirit, bringing holiness to completion, right? Better and better, better and better, better and better. When you die, that's your best day because it's complete. Bring holiness to completion in, and now you can receive this word as a gift, the fear of the Lord in the reverence for the Lord, in the humility of the Lord, in the acceptance of the Lord, in the gifts of the Lord, in the joy of the Lord, delighting in what God has chosen to do. This is what he's chosen to do. We've got to go, but it's this simple. The fear of the Lord is this simple. You're a sinner. He forgives all your sins. Don't be proud about it. Come confess them. Don't be weak. Let him have them. He loves you. He forgives you. He puts you in order. He welcomes you home. Live this life. That's what this gift is all about. And rejoice in it. You know, if you're moaning about being a Christian, you got it wrong. If you're moaning about being a Christian, it's wrong. You have it so wrong if you're moaning about it. We all do it. But if you're moaning about being a Christian, you absolutely positively have it wrong. It's wrong, 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 wrong. When it is, even when it's painful, joyful, loving, kind, then you have it right, even when it's painful. That's why a group of people can get together and say, we're all in this together, boys and girls. Here we go. This is the life we'll lead, and we can be happy about that, even when it means giving your extra money away to the poor. Because that could do you some good. It'll make you a little more dependent on God, and it'll be a, do a little bit more for somebody else. Who else does that? Nobody else does that. We do that, because we're the church. That's what Christians do. We'll pick up in the middle of eight or something next time. Love you. Here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. See you next week. Bye.